Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Ryman. Today on the podcast, we have Claire Zook. Welcome to the show, Claire. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited. Excited about this one. Before we get started, I just want to acknowledge that I'm producing this podcast in the lands of the Clayhus, Homoko, Comox, and Klaam and First Nations. We're one community before we all the other settlers came in and separated them into reserves. Um, this week in, in my uh, Indigenous learning was actually pretty cool. I, I, uh, I got a we're trying to expand the podcast more, kind of in a different fields, um, as well as sort of different groups and folks who listen will be familiar with, you know, the variety of folks I have on. Um, but particularly in the indigenous lens, I've been really wanting to do more learning in that area. Uh, and there's not a lot of folks in our field doing this kind of work that I think identify as indigenous, or if they are, they're not. Speaking up, there's some, but there's not many that I know of. Um, you know, I can literally name four in Canada, and uh, that I know of, certainly less than ten in the states. I'm sure there's more, but um, uh, and so it's been hard to, you know, have those conversations because I can't find anyone to talk to. Uh, but I, uh, I've been expanding into kind of school psych and social work um, and some other fields. And well, I had the great honor of chatting with three um, indigenous school psychologists uh, from the States who do work in, in, in sort of de- in, in decolonizing and indigenizing kind of school spaces. Uh, and you know, it was a really interesting conversation. This wasn't an interview. This was just sort of a chat to kind of come up with top talking points. And it was uh, just fascinating conversation. But also it was interesting, you know, that they almost, they were hesitant to do a podcast with me. Uh, and the reason was because of ABA. Uh, it sounds like, and I've heard this from a lot of folks now that, you know, ABA and sort of the indigenous worldview do not mesh well. Um, and uh, there's a lot of concerns in that area. So I think that's something I want to kind of learn more about. Um, uh, we're not going to be talking about ABA on, on that interview, but um, uh, but looking forward to doing that and getting more of that out there. But it's, it's uh, you know, I've certainly heard a lot about, we're going to be talking a bit today about kind of ableism and stigma and whatnot. And I've heard a lot about, um, you know, certainly some of the neurodiverse communities, uh, or neurodivergent community or neurodiversity community, whatever we're going to call them, um, um, uh, sort of perspective on ABA and, and which is often, you know, a, a very kind of white centric neurodiverse perspective. Um, and then I've had some folks kind of from the black community who are autistic talking about it from a different sort of lens. And, you know, it's, it's much different because of sort of 
a bunch of reasons, which you can listen to those episodes and learn about. Um, but you know, I haven't really explored it in sort of a lot of other cultures in terms of, you know, I've talked to folks from those cultures that work in the field, and of course, they're going to have a bit of a bias, but it's interesting to kind of see. I've definitely seen, you know, there's a lot more talk about sort of cultural responsiveness, cultural adaptations in our work because it's needed and because sort of a lot of our assessments and protocols and everything is very kind of, is very, you know, kind of colonial centric. Uh, yeah, anyway, so I uh, just, uh, you know, uh, my journey in my Indigenous learning has been probably my slowest um, and and sort of most incremental, but I feel like maybe that's not a bad thing because it's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, there's just a, a lot of nuance and a lot of things to pay attention to. Anyway, so digress too long but uh grateful again to be able to produce this podcast on these territories and to you know continue that learning journey so claire um we're gonna be talking about some stuff that uh you know uh i think you know a lot of folks are hearing more about uh maybe afraid to talk about um both in terms of the i think the topic in terms of sort of the you know the the practice not the practical but the sort of you know real world sort of applications but also kind of the technical stuff behind it i think both areas are are scary for folks i'm looking forward to trying to break that down for folks and i'm one of them so uh, you know, I, I i hope i can represent folks out there that maybe struggle with this area because it sounds pretty pretty cool once you start putting it together um um I'm so looking forward to kind of getting into that before we do that maybe claire you could just tell us a bit about yourself kind of you know how you got into into the field you know kind of your 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 sort of origin journey and and kind of what led you to you know uh, the hub lab and and this kind of work yeah, so I have been kind of volunteering for individuals with disabilities um, all throughout my life. Um, but kind of whenever I started to get into my undergrad, I started in the field of psychology, but still wanted to kind of transfer that over to the field of disability as well. Mm -hmm. And so that led me to kind of searching for a spot to see kind of where I would land of kind of incorporating both psychology and um, with uh, disability related fields. And then I stumbled across ABA and that was kind of, I felt like this is something that is definitely kind of both of those things, as well as like having other opportunities for future things. But I didn't know a whole lot about the field itself mm -hmm. and the criticisms that came with it as well. And so that was something that as I got into my master's program, um, I just kind of started researching a little bit more within my practicum site as well, working clinically. Um, just kind of getting a field or getting a feel for the field, I guess, mm. um, just to kind of see where we would land. But it, during my master's program, we've kind of focused, I focused a lot on the experimental side. Um, and that's when I've kind of been able to take those interests of um, both autism and disability and kind of working with that and with um, stigma, as well as um, just kind of studying and how we can start to kind of decrease it. And so that's something that's been informed by my previous kind of experiences of just watching and interacting with individuals with disabilities. Um, and so just kind of wanting to kind of do something and see what the field of behavior analysis can do 
for the individuals that we serve, specifically within the field of ABA as well. So are you in your master's still? Or are you doing right now? Currently, yes. Yeah, okay, I'm still so in my master's right so you're now. still a master's student. So you're, you're, pretty, you're pretty new to all of this. Yes, I yeah. am pretty new to all of this. This is my second year, um, but it's been kind of a pretty immersive experience, I feel like. And so I've learned quite a bit in these past, I guess, two years almost, um, just about the field, both clinically and experimentally as well. Cool. I want to tease out some of that because mm-hmm. I haven't I mean, I had a lot of folks. I mean, I, I think I've had some folks that are relatively new on, but not too many and not too many that are kind of coming into the field, you know, already knowing there's a problem with the field. Um, um, and that's been a, you know, I think a conversation that I've seen a lot of happening, mostly on kind of social media, I think, around, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about this in the podcast, this sort of anti-ABA kind of movement and um, ABA reform, and is that even possible and all those sorts of things. And um, and there's a narrative sort of of you know young folks you know like yourself getting into the field and either wanting to get out really quick uh, because it sounds so sketchy um, or um, you know or you know diving deep into kind of you know how to make it better. Mm-hmm. Um, um, what was kind of your, your vibe kind of just coming into the master's program as far as sort of, you know, you didn't really even, you didn't even really know what ABA was, you know, and then you decided to kind of follow, follow into it. Like, did you, did you, were you already aware of these criticisms before you even kind of applied for your master's degree? So not before I had applied, I actually got the experience or got the opportunity to work Um, like as an internship at an ABA facility for a couple months. And Mm. so that was my first kind of exposure to the field. Mm. Um, And so that was something that I, that experience is what I had, but it was kind of, it was still fairly limited Mm. um, coming into the field. But during that time, that was when I started questioning kind of why am I in this field or what are these things? Like, why is it important to say within the field as well? Mm-hmm. Um, to kind of further that change um, and kind of not abandoning all hope kind of just because of some certain things, because in my kind of view, ABA is something that's going to stay for, for the foreseeable future, in my opinion. And so that's something that because it is the gold standard of autism treatment. Um, so my view is kind of like, how can we start to incorporate things and like address those criticisms within kind of both practice as well as with the field as a whole. And so that was something that I kind of had that decision right then before I got into my master's program of, I would like to stay and I would like to make a difference at some, at some level, at any level that I can. can. That's awesome. Now what I'm curious, sort of like, where were you sort of making contact with these criticisms? It was, it was a lot of online stuff. And so that was where I kind of, um, when I first started getting into the, getting into like my master's program, people gave me like Facebook pages to recommend uh, to follow, just kind of like of groups of neurodiverse individuals yeah. that are either providing criticisms on the field or that are kind of 
just voicing their opinion on things that are currently happening within our world and our society Mm -hmm. and how those are affecting them as neurodiverse individuals as well. And so kind of looking at the treatment and a lot of personal experiences. And so that was where I had met a lot of the criticisms then. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, no, I just, it's, it's, it's sort of neat to hear from folks that are, you know, you know, entering the field in this sort of era of social justice um, and uh, particularly, you know, in, in the kind of neurodiversity movement and whatnot. And, um, you know, I think, you know, a lot of us, you know, didn't have that, didn't have that opportunity. I mean, we, I, we came in doing the thing, doing the ableist things for years and years and years and thinking that was the right thing to do and not getting it and, 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 and then starting to make these connections and try to kind of backpedal as it were, you know, well, no, I'm yeah. going to do better now or, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And, and uh, so it's just interesting to kind of hear, you know, the, that 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 perspective of sort of just being kind of like, you know, just coming right in when it's already a, a mess, coming into the mess, yeah. uh, but where, where it's been identified as a mess and still, you know, feeling like, well, I'm, I'm, I want to stay here and, uh, you know, and do something else. Because, I mean, you could have... You know, were, were were other options kind of presented to you? Like, I mean, you were into disability and whatnot, um, you know, and doing that kind of work. And and so it wasn't necessarily ABA that was your initial goal. It was just sort of, you know, you heard about ABA and it kind of meshed well. But, you know, were there other directions you thought about going and before you kind of settled on ABA? Are you a solopreneur running your business alone and need help getting more exposure to your target audience while growing your brand? At Beal Marketing Group, we specialize in delivering comprehensive marketing solutions tailored to your unique needs. Our team of seasoned experts excels in crafting creative strategies that captivate your target audience, build brand authority, generate high-quality leads, and streamline your business processes. Whether you're seeking a brand makeover, effective lead generation, or a plug-and-play solution that takes care of everything for you, we have you covered. Services can include strategy sessions, video editing, social media management, brand board development, and even a virtual assistant. When you choose Beale Marketing Group, you're partnering with a team of passionate professionals who treat your business as our own. We go above and beyond to understand your goals, target audience, and unique challenges to craft tailor-made strategies that produce remarkable results. Schedule your free discovery call today at bmgfreeconsult.com. That's bmgfreeconsult.com. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is density. Um, not necessarily for my master's, mm. but for um, kind of moving forward after my master's, I'm going to go pursue a PhD in disability studies. Mm. And so, but I kind of, what I hope to do with that is to keep using this stuff from behavior analysis and the science that's behind it and still working on the field of ABA while gathering those like experiences and those not that knowledge about disability as a whole and different theories um, that we can come in contact with, the different Mm. qualitative studies that are being done. 
um, where the research is already existing, just not within our field, mm-hmm. and kind of seeing how we can start to kind of merge those concerns or merge that information that's been kind of brought forth already by the field of disability studies and just see kind of what we can, if we can, behavior analysis can support it in any way. And so that's kind of been, it's not like a, it's something that I want to keep going and keep doing to pursue and keep affecting change within the field of ABA and still working within this, but not necessarily like um, at, I guess, a clinical level for myself anyways. Yeah, yeah, no, that's cool. That's cool. Oh, I think that's a great, great, great PhD choice (laughs) if it can work out. And and I love when folks, you know, don't don't get degrees in ABA, (laughs) (laughs) Um, even master's degrees. Uh, You know, I mean, I I I don't see a problem with getting it, but I like when folks get you know these other sorts of angles. I just uh, I was just editing an episode I did with um, um, Dr. Mike Mueller, um, um, who founded the uh, the IBAO. Um, are you familiar with that? I'm not familiar with that. The IBAO is the International Behavior Analyst Organization. Uh, basically, it was created um, to meet the needs of uh, behavior analysts outside of North America who wanted certification after the BACB made the change uh, that was effective, I think. I think it was the beginning of this year. Um, um, where they stop certifying folks outside of North America, uh, UK, and Australia. Uh, and so he formed the IBAO to sort of meet that need. And, um, and you know, one of, the, one of the things we were talking about was how, you know, the BACB's requirement that you have a, a degree in a related field um, is, is, is an odd requirement. Because, you know, what does, you know, what, do, because it's the VCS, it's the verified course sequence, that's the sort of the important piece around sort of learning ABA. So what's it matter if you have master's degrees in, in related fields or not? Um, uh, and then talking to sort of other folks about how, you know, ABA is kind of insular in some ways. And, and you know, we don't really necessarily, generally speaking, play well you know, with, with, with other fields, um, or other perspectives. And, uh, and, and, you know, I think part of ABA reform is, you know, kind of encouraging folks to, you know, look beyond ABA when they're doing their work. Uh, um, you know, not that ABA is bad, but it's ABA is, you know, not the only thing uh, mm-hmm. uh, that you need to be thinking about. Um, so anyway, so I, I, I just, it's great to hear that, you know, um, uh, folks like yourself are are not sticking on ABA all day train um, mm-hmm. and looking at kind of combining things. I think that's awesome. Um, so what was the sort of impetus then for kind of, you know, focusing on kind of ableism and stigma? So that was kind of kind of brought up by my previous experiences and just my interest in disability in itself. And so I've always been interested in advocacy um, mm-hmm. and kind of seeing what we can do with that. But then I wanted to kind of take it and see what kind of data is important or might be important for the autistic community to have. What data might be good for implementers and practitioners to see or what would be important kind of like 
address and have a starting point on the discussion of ableism within either behavior analysis and within society as well. Mm. And so that's kind of what this work kind of originated as. It's just I'm interested in ableism as a pro- like as a process and as a behavior. And how can we go about studying that and seeing mm. if if we're able to study it at all? Mm. And so that mm. was kind of the the first step with all of this. And so my interest was mostly just kind of getting that starting point and then having see seeing where it can go and seeing mm. if we're able to kind of demonstrate what autism or what stigma like against autism is like represented as, as well as um, how can we start going about um, disrupting it and to trying to affect change as well. So, so what kinds of things were you seeing? Well, first off, just tell me maybe a little bit about, I like this background stuff. I think it's, it's kind of helpful to, mm-hmm. you know, get some context and some, so where, where these kind of ideas come from. Cause, and I just love that, you know, folks that are, you know, kind of in this, in the younger generation are, are, are thinking about these things. I certainly, you know, was not thinking about anything that ended with ism when I was your age, um, you know. <laughs> um, and if anything, I was probably engaging in lots of things that started with ism, ended with ism. Um, so, what 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 was the kind of volunteer work that you were doing? So, um, I used to work and volunteer for kind of just a it's almost like Special Olympics, but yeah. with a different name. And so, just kind mm. of writing supports and running events for sporting events to kind of enact support leisurely activities um, in all types of individuals with disabilities. Mm. And then I, as I got older and started working, I ended up working at a ISL for about a year and kind of working summer camps. And so working in home with disabled individuals um, and just providing supports as well as providing some interventions. We didn't have a whole lot of contact with ABA Mm. in that setting, but now looking back, I see that those, I, I could have had the experience to contact ABA in those settings as well, but I I didn't. Um, And so that was most of my experience comes from that specific um, situation where we're kind of taking individuals out into the community as well as just kind of um, working with different types of people and different types of staff and seeing their interactions with our clients as well. And so kind of seeing both positive interactions as well as kind of prejudiced interactions as well as like taking out to the community, we're thinking all of these things. And I notice a lot of kind of stigma within myself as like, as a direct support staff of, I see kind of people looking at us and seeing how people are like perceiving us in this space, as well as me being Mm. the person providing support, all of this stuff. Um, And so just kind of personal experience, but not a personal experience in the way that I'm experiencing the stigma. I'm not, it's not being enacted towards me. I just noticed a lot of the stigma that is being enacted towards the clients that I served. Mm. Yeah. Right on. Okay, cool. That's, uh, that, that helps me kind of understand why, mm-hmm. why this is such an important focus for you. So, mm-hmm. so where are you, where are you doing the master's degree? Um, when, where, like, where are you? Where? Oh, Missouri State University. Yeah. Okay. And Mm -hmm. we're kind of going to get into sort of, you know, the, the lab you work in and, and, and some of the stuff that comes there. What made you pick that place? Because it seems like if you went anywhere else, 
you wouldn't be doing this. I have felt kind of the exact same way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm actually from Springfield and that's Springfield, Missouri, which is where Missouri State is based out of. Oh. And so I ended up kind of coming back home to just kind of pursue a degree. And I saw that they had um, applied like applied behavior analysis as a program. And so I said, that's kind of perfect. That's what I mm. want to do. And then um, the more that I kind of, I sat with it, talked with a couple of friends. One of my friends ended up applying for the same um, same program and got in, but mm. she was working, she had kind of already spoken with Jordan Belisle, Dr. Jordan mm. Belisle. And so she told me to reach out and mm. see kind of what's, what, if there's in a, a spot for me, or if there's anything that I can do to kind of work with the lab. And so mm. that was my kind of introduction. So I ended up there just as like, that was the perfect option. It seemed like for me at the moment. And then I realized what a wealth of information that this university has in APA. Mm. I had no idea until I was in it and realized that this is kind of a much different program or a program that has a different focus, it feels like, um, but still like learning those basic things, but learning more of RFT and learning RDT as well. And like focusing on kind of those higher order, like learning processes as well. Mm, Wow. So a bit of a crazy coincidence that you're from the town where this yep. happens. Wow, that's <laughs> definitely. Awesome. I I would never have thought <laughs> because I because I you know I've been listening. I've been trying to sort of you know and folks you know will have already will already know what we're going to be talking about here if they're reading any show notes and um, you know uh, you know RFT in of itself I think is becoming you know you know more more better known now by more folks in the field but you know mm-hmm. it's still. It still is a, you know, not something that's taught everywhere, um, um, but there's a lot more folks practicing it. You know, I think there's and there's sort of whole, you know, uh, communities kind of built around it now. Um, and but RDT is, I mean, it's probably only happening in that lab. Uh, I believe it's happening in some other labs, but ours is the primary. Like this mm. is primarily where our research is coming out of um, gotcha. for RDT. Because I know that, you know, just from, I was trying to listen to some couple podcasts that uh, Jordan did um, uh, with uh, the controversial exchange folks um, who are now, I think, the explanatory fiction, that would be the name of the podcast now, that they're doing. Anyway, um, uh, with Ryan O'Donnell um, and sort of try and, you know, get a little bit of a grasp on some of this stuff and it all sounded like, and I think, I think, I think the interview that he did with the, the the TCM podcast was in 2020, so it was like three years ago, and he was talking about you know this RDT stuff just being a couple of years old, um, and so, you know, I don't know where I'm going with this, but um, it's uh, like 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 do does he have students? I mean, maybe now he does, but. Are, like, did, would he have students coming there specifically to learn about this stuff? Like, is it is it is it known enough in the community that you know you should go to Missouri if you want to dive deep into this crazy psychedelic stuff that that, that Dr. Belial is doing? Um, I'm not sure. We haven't had somebody like specifically say that that's the reason that they've come to yeah. the lab. Most yeah. of us have kind of either are from around Springfield or kind right. of have gone to Missouri State for their undergraduate as well. And so they've we've just been able to kind of 
foster the interest of ABA wow. in our undergraduate students. And then they want to kind of go on to pursue um, just they have interest in RFT and RDT as undergrads. Yeah. And so we have an undergraduate lab as well. And so that's kind of primarily where they kind of they start to kind of get their interest peaked a little bit. And then um, a lot of people do then apply for the master's program there as well to kind of continue wow. their work and to kind of learn a lot more and like get a bit like get further into the world of RDT. Right. So there's going to just going to be this bizarre phenomenon of of people from Springfield, Missouri, you know, becoming experts in this area that no one else is. Um, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, I guess that's how it goes when you're when you're uh, starting something new. Yeah. Um, all right. So you, you wanted to you wanted to kind of do work learning more about ableism and, and stigma and kind of analyzing that. Um, now, what made you know? the work, uh, in, you know, in Dr. Bilal's lab kind of fit well with, you know, those, those goals. So whenever I joined the program, they were already doing research with RDT based in um, racism, as well as with climate change. Mm. Um, and so I saw the opportunity to kind of, they were already looking at larger social like um, contracts of either racism or Kind of larger social issues of climate change and i kind of thought to myself what can i do with this and mm. can i do something with ableism mm. and the answer from like i had asked my i had asked jordan if that was something that would be what we could do and the answer was yes and so that mm. kind of moved on from there as i we basically just kind of had the idea to study this and rdt happened to be the way to study it mm. and so that it kind of worked out very well of just ideas as well as ways to kind of come have those ideas make way for a larger research line kind of later on as I went through the program as well. Because hmm. it, it makes sense, you know, that, that that it would apply. Like, I don't know why it makes sense. I'm hoping you'll be able to explain <laughs> that soon. Uh, but um, um, but it only makes sense just from sort of, from, from, from my perspective, from a few podcast interviews I've done. So I did an interview I did so. What were the interviews? It was an interview with uh, Vic Suarez. Um, was one interview. I think she was in Nevada, maybe. Uh, Rocco Catrone. Um, so Vic and Rocco, separate interviews, both used RFT. Well, Vic used RFT to study bias. Um, and I know there's been a lot of studies around bias in RFT and, 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 and as sort of a practical application of it. Um, Rocco did a study around stigma uh, with RFT. Um, and so, you know, I should have listened to that episode again before talking to you because I think that might have helped <laughs> me today. Um, and then and then I had another uh, interview with uh, Dr. Kolich from Hawaii on who just who has been doing some work in stigma as well, but I think not necessarily uh, from an RFT lens. Um, and so, yeah, I can, I can see something. So maybe before we kind of break down how, you know, what your work is and what you've been looking at, um, I think it might help me um, and certainly I think some folks in the audience um, to have sort of a, you know, a little bit of a breakdown of what RDT is uh, and maybe even starting with, you know, RFT 
and, mm-hmm. and leading into Definitely. our now, now I know there's some papers out there that are crazy to read. Um, and, uh, and again, uh, I'm going to reference those, those, uh, podcast uh, conversations that I listened to because they were helpful for me, but they were also, you know, I had a, you know, a good, good night's sleep, good, good meal, mm-hmm. cup of coffee and, and be walking so that my brain was working to really kind of focus on this stuff. Um, so, there's a, there's a lot of pieces to it. Um, so, mm-hmm. uh, interested to hear sort of from, from, from the grad student perspective, um, kind of what, uh, what, what, what this whole RDT thing is and where it came from. Definitely. So kind of with both RFT and RDT, kind of the main point of interest is language. And so the language is kind of one of the most complex behaviors we as humans have as kind of this complex being. Mm-hmm. And so we've got kind of like a lot of problems. Um, that can happen with language. And so that um, is where those questions emerge that RFT kind of sought to answer. And Mm. so RFT is kind of this um, behavior analytic account of human language and cognition. And so um, basically kind of the main point of this is that we have relational responding. And so this relational responding kind of allows us to respond to one thing um, in terms of another without us having us directly learning it. And so where we have one some where we have one stimulus, um, we are able to kind of relate it to another thing without having um being taught it at all or being provided that history of reinforcement with it, we're able to derive that relation out of it. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the kind of the main components of RFT is that um, we have this type of like arbitrarily applicable relational responding, which is kind of a bunch of random words of basically just kind of um, we kind of respond to things on the basis of um, kind of a socially established relationship of the stimuli. So it's been given a value by by either like a history of contact with it. So think like um, with dog, dog has a history of like we have things that we relate it to. So hearing a bark, we can relate easily to a dog. Mm. Hearing the word dog, it relates to an image of a dog. And so mm-hmm. all of these things we respond to because we have been we have put value on it for mm. those to be related together. Mm-hmm. And so we also do this. Um, that's kind of the complex part of it. And then we have kind of just non-arbitrary relational responding as well. And so that's just kind of relating things on the basis of either physical properties and formal properties. And so that's um, one where we just kind of, we know this is a certain thing. So if I look at a dog, I know that's a dog. Mm. Um, And so that, or um, not, I look at kind of a dog and then we have an elephant. I know that if I go, which is smaller, Mm. the dog is smaller. And so we base that off of the physical property of the specific thing. And so um, both of those things, those types of responding are pretty important for for RDT as well. And so kind of why RDT kind of came about was that there's previous history with RFT um, that doesn't quite fully account for some of the changes in the responses that are being made. And Mm. so that was where um, RDT kind of sought to answer some of these questions. And so this isn't something that like RFT isn't something that or the criticism or the kind of how we should branch off of it. Yeah. Um, isn't something that's innate to our lab. This is something that's been done kind of historically. Not um, so RDT is just kind of one way to that this has been looked at. And so um, with RFT, like people don't 
um, respond to the stimuli um, kind of like as the exact same. So equivalence classes are not the same. And so that's kind of what, what kind of affects that would be um, kind of how complex the stimuli is, maybe the number of relations that are associated with that stimuli mm. as well um, can change how we respond to it. And so that's kind of where RDT kind of steps in to kind of see what we can do to look at these kind of inequalities and see how those, um, the number of stimulus relations and the strength of those relationships, how they kind of come about and how they start to interact with each other as well. And so our kind of, we have a main um, like definition of RDT that we kind of go over, mm. um, but it provides like, a, it provides a pretty good account, but this is kind of our first attempt um, this was done by um, Belial and colleagues in 2022, kind of the first attempt to find like a working definition of RDT. Mm. And so our definition is kind of um, that RDT provides a quantitative extension of relational frame theory, and it attempts to model or describe higher order interactions within relational behavior. And so the critical element of the theory is that relations differ not only in their type of relation, but their degree of relatedness. And so that's mm. um, relational density. And so that degree of relatedness is that um, kind of key part to RDT. And so kind of implications from that is that we may might be able to therefore predict the interactions between behavior and the environment, given the knowledge of different relational events, um, including relational density as well. And so this is kind of... Um, it's not that RDT is different from RFT at all. Like with this um, definition, it's that extension. Like we said, um, the way that it's kind of described is that RFT might be more of an umbrella term mm. um, or an umbrella thing where RDT is underneath it. Mm. So it kind of um, comes out as like a hierarchical network of RFT at the top with um, RDT being developed from that as mm. well. And so with the extension off of RFT, we, it, RDT also kind of includes behavioral momentum theory as well. And so that's kind of the relative resistance to change that a behavior has. So mm. um, basically kind of what that is, is um, like how or how can we affect that stimulus? So if we're a, if it's something that has quite a resistance to change versus something that is easy, easily being able to change as well. So that would be kind of what that kind of um, how we think about that with RDT is how we have different kind of like um, when we're able to try to affect those stimulus classes that have um, that are more resistant to change as well. So one way that RDT, this is kind of where I think um, a lot of it becomes a little bit more complex because we add in kind of the metaphor of um, Newtonian classical mechanics. Mm. Um, and so that's where we get the mass, the volume, and the density um, right. that goes with relational density. And so basically, so we have density, and that is um, our strength of relations that are kind of contained within a certain network. And so mm. basically, what that kind of means is like if something that's more dense, you're going to have um, those data points kind of clustered very closely together. Mm. And then those that are less dense are going to be kind of more spread out and have those are going to not be as strong of relations within that. And so that mm. can be measured. And then that can be measured quantitatively with the distances between each number of stimuli as well. So we're able to measure kind of the degree of relatedness or the strength of that relation as well. 
And then we have kind of volume, which is the number of relations that are contained within the network. So hmm. those kind of have, um, that depends on whatever your network would be. So those with higher numbers or higher volume of network, you're going to have more of um, more stimuli within them. Um, and then those with less volume will have less number of stimuli within them. And then that all kind of plays into um, relational mass. And so this is the resistance to change um, mm. of that relational network. And so we have those um, clusters of stimuli that are highly dense as well as have a high volume. Those ones are the most resistant to change is what has been found through previous research. Okay. And so, but those with low volume um, and low density are easily, are more easily able to be changed or to affect change towards them. And so how that kind of plays into this is, or plays into kind of the topic of ableism yeah, and as well as racism um, or any of the other kind of areas that we've studied so far of that these processes are very kind of socially ingrained within our society. So what we've kind of found so far is that these networks are highly dense and have a high okay. volume and so that they are more resistant to change. And so that our interventions kind of have to be aware of that whenever they're being developed, because um, we might have to go about it in a certain way that might not be a quick and easy um a quick and easy kind of change to mm -hmm, change those mm -hmm. like relational frames surrounding um, either like a disabled individual, a black individual, mm -hmm. any type of, um, I guess, whatever stigma is kind of enacted of those kind of more social societally, societally ingrained um, topics as well. So, um, but that's kind of our little breakdown of RDT is this, that we we're able to kind of quantitatively measure these relations of behavior, of behavior um, through this process. And so with ableism, we were able to kind of go through that process and mm. see um, how the different terms kind of clustered. And we looked at language in particular, language surrounding autism. And so we looked to see what terms kind of clustered with the negative and what terms mm. had that more of that high mass with the negative versus those terms that were kind of in the relational network of the positive as well. So that's kind of what we what we did and what we sought to do for kind of our first thing. Um, but then we kind of go into a little bit later to try to see how dense those relations are and see how we can start to affect them as well and seeing um, if we're able to kind of break up that coherence or that like the high dense, high volume network um, and start to kind of disrupt those relational frames as well disrupt that that relational network i guess okay uh <laughs> well i think i kind of understood that uh, okay awesome no that's yeah. the goal <laughs> yeah yeah um you know i think initially you know the the application of all these this kind of phys physics metaphors was a bit of a struggle um mm -hmm. uh, uh but you know i think I think if you kind of push that aside for a second and not mm -hmm. worry so much about uh, mass volume density as being, you know, what they are. Um, although, again, check out these podcasts because Jordan and Dimitri go into like quantum physics yes. with this stuff and um, yes. it, it gets pretty crazy. 
Um, they can uh, get, they give a much better, uh, more technical, I guess, definition. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if better so. is the right word, but definitely <laughs> more technical. Um, absolutely. And certainly if you're, uh, you know, uh, you really like to nerd out on RFT, you'd enjoy that conversation. Again, it took me the third play of the podcast to start to slightly enjoy it. Um, the first play, I had to stop it and, and uh, you know, and, 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 and read something dumb just to reset my brain um but uh, <laughs> um okay so so what did your studies look like then how, how are you sort of you know putting this all together gotcha so the kind of the first one that we ran was just our um basically an insight of or a basic rdt study is okay. what we did and so um what we what we did is have um participants go through a process that um is called a multidimensional scaling procedure. Mm. And so um, basically what this is, is um, you are kind of provided two sets of stimuli. And mm. so in this case, we use kind of different descriptor words that were either stigmatically positive or stigmatically negative mm. um, that were kind of associated with disability. So okay. our um, negative words were deficient, outcast, um, as well as... Um, deficient outcast. And then we had for the positive terms, we had integrated and capable. Mm -hmm. um, and so just kind of like pretty words that will kind of create stigma if they're attached to an individual person. Right. And so what they did is they related those words with um, different labels that have been associated with autism. So be that person first. So autistic per or autistic person first. Um, uh, person with autism and then identity first autistic person. Right. And then we also did high functioning and low functioning labels of autism. Mm, right. Yeah. And then we also did the current DSM diagnostic levels of requires support, requires a substantial support and requires very substantial support. So we were kind of looking at um, different types of language that are either used both within professional fields, but then also used like colloquially within society as well, because we often hear high and low functioning. And then we often hear kind of person first language being used within society. And then we also hear person first and um, a lot more of that categorical um, description of autism within practitioners as well. Mm. And so um, what we kind of looked at was, they related all of these words together and they have to relate all words to every other word. Mm. And so that gives us kind of this um, picture on a geometric space. And so what that kind of represents or what, what the MDS does is that we kind of put it into a space that has a visual representation of the relational networks or the relational like of the relations being plotted onto this graph. And so that kind of makes visual analysis very easy, as well as mm. kind of a quantitative analysis as well. We can get that with this as well. So um, basically what that ended up looking like was um, we had those clusters, uh, those data points, mm -hmm. and I put onto those that multidimensional scaling procedure. And then we're able to kind of pinpoint where those relations fall and where those like specific terms fit into what network. And so our main like area of interest was the positive network and a negative network. Mm. And so I guess we can kind of go into what we what we found on it or get some well, more information on the background of that. Well before you do that, yeah, I'm curious yeah. sort of what the actual experiments look like. Like 
obviously mm-hmm. there, there were some humans involved in this, right? Yeah. So, so what, so what were they, you doing with these people? So they related um, each of those terms together, and that mm. was so that gives us our result as mm. they relate. So they had, um, I guess, it was a total of fourteen words that they had to um, relate together, and so that comes out to about I think one hundred and fourteen combinations of words. And so mm. they would relate like outcast with deficient. They would relate outcast to um, an autistic person. They would relate outcast to a person with autism. And so they would just go down the list, making sure that every kind of pair of word or of words is related together. And so that's kind of um, the procedure for kind of getting this multidimensional scale. Um, Sorry, who were these people? Uh, so these people were, we had kind of, the undergraduate population of just kind of general population, they studied psychology. Then we had master's ABA students, and then we had um, grad, or then we had professional like ABA practitioners. And so we had three different samples with this as well. Okay, so, so you're you're looking at undergrads in psych and asking them to do this, and then separately the mm-hmm. grad students, and then separately the separately professionals. The- Yes. And, and so they and, all filled out the same thing. And they all filled the same thing. And like, did you get some folks that, you know, were maybe like, for, well, first off, how, like, how many folks were you doing this with? A total, we had, um, we had kind of, we had eight ABA practitioners, and then we had about, I think, 10 graduate students. And then we had, I think, about, 20 um, undergraduate students. And so we have kind of some small samples on there. And that's kind of yeah. one thing that I do want to get into later about kind of the limitations that come with both RDT yeah. as well as the limitations of the study. Um, but so we we had a, those smaller samples, but they were all kind of, um, we show kind of the progression from like kind of the beginning of your journey with an ABA. So like mm-hmm, we all kind mm-hmm. of started in undergraduate. Then we have, um, your graduate experience and then we have our practitioners and so this isn't a it's not a longitudinal study it's a cross-sectional study so um we just have kind of snapshots at each point in time but that would be something that we would want to like hope to do in the future is to then look at how do those relational frames change kind of as so look you at so this you look at the same people from undergrad to grad to practitioner right see that would be change. that would be kind of that i think that would be a really cool kind of extension off of this, but with yeah. this right now, kind of with a shorter term study, um, we yeah. just kind of did that cross-sectional analysis. Right, of these right, three right. So you can't really make any sort of connection between the two. Correct. Um, um, because what I, I guess what I was wondering is like, there is a lack of diversity when it comes to educational material depicting black children in the field of applied behavior analysis. Human expressions gives black and brown children realistic and detailed images of kids who look like them, modeling everyday skills that may be difficult for them to communicate or express. At Human Expressions, the benefits of representation for black and brown kids in educational curricula are clear. Increased self-esteem, reducing stereotypes, and increased validation and support. To learn more, go to www.humanexpressions.org. That's human, H-U-E-M-A-N, expressions.org. The second secret word is stigma. You know, and again, these might be future studies as well. I think, you know, looking at sort of 
because I'm sort of imagining, you know, undergrads and even grad students, you know, you know, I'm imagining eight Claire's um, <laughs> that that all have already have this sort of different perspective on the world than, say, eight Ben's do, you know, mm-hmm. because, you know, um, I've been around a lot longer. And so. Like, I guess what I'm wondering is, is, you know. Did you come up with sort of. Well, maybe t- tell us what maybe I don't know. I think you need to tell me what you found. Tell me what you okay. found in, in each group, but that, that might answer these questions. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So in our undergraduate sample, um, one thing that I guess to kind of make these results make a little bit more sense to kind of the listeners yeah. um, is that we the way that the results are graphed is they're graphed on a um, this geometric space. And so this geometric space is basically a square that has two different dimensions. Mm. Um, and it looks kind of, it looks like a graph with um, right. kind of where those data plots are pointed. And so what you can kind of picture is that these data points are plotted on there into kind of what we term clusters, but they're more, that's our like networks as well. Mm. So they those that kind of cluster together um, and that's how I'll kind of refer to it as um, within those networks is that these are kind of clustered together. These are related more closely together versus right. these are kind of farther apart. And so these are shown within all of this geometric space. So mm. with our undergraduate students, um, if we can picture kind of like a square, we have um, our negative on the left and we have the positive on the right. And so our positive mm. we kind of found was that the term or the label high functioning um, was related closely with the positive descriptors as well as with mm. the average person. Right. And then on the left-hand side, which is our negative cluster, we have the negative um, stigmatic terms as well as the DSM support labels and low functioning. Mm. And for our undergraduates, they were asked to relate autistic person and person with autism and so those are actually kind of found right about in the middle. And mm. one of, and person with autism is a little bit more towards that positive network. And mm. so overall, what we see with the undergraduate students in this sample is that they related autistic person and person with autism about the same. Um, mm. And so that's something like, or they related it about the same, but they also related them slightly positively. Um, mm. And so that's something that is, I think, a good good kind of statement or good representation and shows kind of how the general population might view autistic people um, with those labels specifically. But we have those pretty high um, stigmatizing terms of low and high functioning as well. And so um, with the graduate students, what we see is we still see those networks, the negative on the left, positive on the right. Mm. Um, Those support labels still cluster negatively. um, And so does low functioning. And then on the right with that positive network, average person and high functioning are still um, clustering with that positive. Mm. And then what we see with autistic person and person with autism is that it starts shifting more towards that negative network. Mm. It's not fully in the network, but it is moved um, from kind of slightly to the right to slightly to the left. And that's both of them moved. Yes. Yeah. Both of them moved. Mm. And so that just kind of shows um, a little bit of like the views of just kind of the overall, I guess, of referring to an autistic person. I feel like those two terms are more representative and um, have like, or as opposed to high and low functioning, which are 
very stigmatic. And so those have been pulled and pulled tightly with those negative descriptive mm. words as well. And so this kind of starts, it makes, I guess I'll wait to get into that a little bit, but we can yeah. see that um, like those denser relations are kind of pulling things in a little bit is what we're starting to see. Right. And so with this is especially kind of shown within the practitioner sample. So what we have is that we have the negative network still being on the left, positive network on the right, support labels as well as um, high and low functioning stay about the same. Mm -hmm. um, however, we see autistic person, person with autism being related very closely with the support labels and those mm. support labels are being, um, are those are the support labels are a part of that negative network. And so we see the negative network kind of um, become like we see autistic person and person with autism kind of pulling very closely to that negative network. Hmm. And whenever we measure those distances between all three samples, we see in the undergraduate sample that those distances are closer to the positive network. And then in the graduate sample, they're closer to the negative for autistic person. Wow. And then for the practitioners, both of those terms are, those distances are shorter and are closer to the negative network, mm. kind of representing that they're being related more negatively, uh, like within practitioners. And so um, one of the mm. kind of implications, I guess, of this mm -hmm. is um, those networks that are, um, those negative networks are fairly strong. Um, and so we see kind of the lower density or yeah, we see um, kind of higher volume, um, higher density within these negative networks. Mm. And so we see kind of practitioners are kind of um, relating them more negatively, but they also kind of um, are being related more towards that support label specifically. Mm. Mm. And so that support kind of, in my, in my opinion, it kind of makes sense to me in my head. Of yep. ABA practitioners are the people who are providing supports to autistic individuals and therefore autistic individuals are related to kind of that requiring support label. Mm -hmm. However, those labels are being related negatively as well. And so it kind of shows that like we kind of get more information, the more and like more interaction, the further we get into the ABA field. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that we're still evaluating those through kind of pre-existing networks mm -hmm. and that, ne that network is negative. And so even though we're requir we're acquiring all this new information about autistic individuals as practitioners, that this group in particular was relating that through their own like previous relational networks that happened like that are negative. Mm. That makes if that makes any sense. <laughs> it totally makes sense. And yeah. So, so I was like, I think it makes sense to me. Yeah, so. yeah, no, no. And so, but I mean, obviously. You know, I, I, you know, and you've already stated these and, and, and acknowledged that there's there's a lot of limitations here. I mm -hmm. mean, first off, you're, the numbers obviously are, uh, you know, uh, of, 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 of folks you had kind of coming in, um, you know, uh, probably how you selected those folks, um, you know, is a piece. I, I wonder about the age of the folks. Like, like, uh, like I'm, I'm curious how old these, you know, practitioners were. You know. They were, I was like, they honestly, I think their range was probably their average was about like, um, I want to say like late 20s, early 30s, probably around 30 was the average. Mm. So, so we're still relatively young in the field, mm -hmm. you know. So, like, it'd be really interesting to look at, you know, 
professor emeritus, you know, folk, right. you know, and, Definitely. and see, you know, see what they're thinking. Um, and uh, also folks sort of from certainly from different backgrounds, different, you know, different, different, you know, uh, you know, ethnic groups, um, um, different, you know, identities and cross sections would probably all, you know, and even more interesting would be to see, you know, autistic practitioners themselves, yes. you know, and I Definitely. bet you there's, I bet you there's also, but I bet you some of that still probably even applies to them, you know, because I, I know I hear a lot about sort of, you know, stigma and um, stigma within groups, you know, and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, we talk a lot about sort of, um, uh, you know, ra racism within, you know, within the marginalized groups themselves, you know, towards each other or about themselves or their own perspectives. Yeah. So. And then certainly, yeah, like you said, doing the longitudinal to actually see how someone's, you know, relations change across the board would be really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was something that I think that um, like we hope to do for the future, because that would kind of show that um, exposure to ABA and as through like a progression of because it is it is a progression. We start mm -hmm. as not having really any information. Like if I look at myself, I had practically no knowledge of what ABA was or kind mm -hmm. of behavioral principles going into it. Then going to um, graduate study, you're learning those interventions. You're learning those things that are kind of shrouded or very much focused on like the deficits and kind of addressing those deficits and providing support for those. Whereas mm -hmm. um, we're not like that's something that we wouldn't be aware of prior to kind of that education. And then as you go into yeah. the practitioners, you're actually implementing those specific support strategies and those interventions. And so it kind of shows kind of the, like, I guess the more kind of ingrained you are within ABA and the more information yeah. that we kind of get, we're evaluating that through those existing relational frames However, that's not being done kind of, or it's being, it's showing at least with these results in these populations yeah. that it's being done negatively as well. So let's just say for sake of argument, just to kind of have a conversation about it, because this is all mm -hmm. early stuff for you. Well, first off, did you do something, anything else? So we did a couple other things that we did. With yeah, it. let's and hear so, those first. Yeah. yeah. So our kind of second study that we ran off of this was um, not an RDT study, but it was a biased preference response. Okay. So it was basically kind of, we took the first study looking at just kind of how relational frames exist around autism. And then we wanted to see kind of how do these existing relational frames, how does that affect a person's preference for an individual to perform a certain task? Mm. And so um, this kind of, it, these tasks kind of varied. One was a vocational task. One was a kind of social relationship um, task, as well as a, um, we had a childcare task as well. Mm. So it was kind of how likely or on a scale of one to 10, who would you rather take care of your child, an autistic person or an average person? Um, and so they did that as well as then adding those negative descriptors on both the average person and then putting them on the autistic person to see kind of how have those negative descriptors would affect people's preference. Mm. So basically, um, this was just done with one population of, of participants. Yeah. And so they um, went through this whole process of relating these. And it looks very similar to the MDS procedures. However, we did it kind of um, 
the best way to kind of think about it of the graph is we do um, kind of things that are related more closely or so the things that are like higher or the more preference, I guess, of an yep. individual kind of is indicated um, with, I guess, different just kind of we have if there's more preference than um, the line, I guess, goes more towards that person that's, that they prefer. And right. so what we see, I was like the visual analysis of these of both kind of the first study and the second study, the visual analysis of it is kind of, it shows a pretty stark difference and a stark preference. Um, mm. And so kind of talking about how to analyze that visually versus just talking about it, I feel mm. like I want to kind of express that. So what we saw was that kind of in all of the um, scenarios was that the average person was preferred. And so and that's was, not surprising, right? No, and, that and, one's and, not. Yeah, and that makes sense that it would be the opposite. I mean, Right. If if you're labeling folks sort of as, you know, if you're making these sort of strong relations of negativity towards, you know, autistic folks, people with autism, you know, then it, it, it you know, it makes sense. It's not right, but it's not mm -hmm. a good thing. And this is the ableism, right, I guess, that we're talking about here, right? Yes. So it makes, it yeah. makes sense that I would, from an ableist perspective, that I would prefer the more able you know, folks on the right versus the folks on the left. Right. And so the thing that we kind of like, one of the really interesting things was, is that like when an average person and an average person are put together, uh, like put up against each other, they're yeah. equally likely to be chosen right. as the person. Then when you put an autistic person, an average person, the average person is more likely to be chosen. Yes. Um, but then whenever you add in um, the negative descriptor on the autism, autistic person, we see, if you think of it like a scale, we see that go down with the mm. average person going up. So mm. even, because they're starting kind of already, even without the descriptors, they're starting at a disadvantage. Right. Then when you add that descriptor, it just kind of exacerbates that. Right. And so, but then whenever we put it on the average person, put that negative descriptor and take it off of the autistic person, we see it even out. So we see the person with the average person with a negative descriptor. And then hmm. an autistic person having the equally likely chance, even though this person, this average person is described as unhealthy, deficient, hmm. outcast. Hmm. And so that's kind of shows, it shows kind of that preference yeah. that these individuals that are these participants had yeah. were, was very kind of for that average person for all of these tasks or for all of the tasks as well. Cool. And so did you do the same thing with like the positive descriptors? We didn't do it with the positive descriptors. Mm. We were just kind of looking at that negative stigma. Mm. Mm. But that would be kind of an interesting extension to kind of mm. look at it with mm. those positive. Um, cool. But then uh, you were talking earlier about kind of like replicating this with a wider group of participants, a larger yep. group. And so that's something that we're actually kind of hoping to do. Mm. We have a uh, grant actually to um, from ACBS to kind of look at how we can start disrupting these frames. And so we actually yes. ran a, we ran a pilot study that looked at kind of the coherence or those like um, we looking into the strength of those relational frames surrounding autism. Yep. Yep. And so what we found was just that people were evaluating this information based on existing relational frames. And so sure. new information was added to try to disrupt this. So these, we use utilize counter narratives or small, short counter narratives when they got that new information, they were still evaluating it um, negatively or like, and they were kind of putting stigma towards that individual. It didn't change it. It just mm. kind of 
people were just looking at it how they usually look at it and kind of taking in that information that way. And so that was kind of the initial study to see how hard or how difficult it would be and right. how much kind of intervention might be necessary. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then so with the with the ACBS grant, we hope to um, find and work on interventions to kind of disrupt these relational frames, but then also doing this in a more representative sample, a wider range of people. Um, and we'll yes. still be able to run the MDS procedure. And so we'll be still be able to kind of see the results in the relational frames pre and post um, of a representative sample of people. And so that would actually give us a better look at what ableism kind of looks like um, either, but a broader area. So cool. Yeah. I think that that's, that's our next step for our kind of all of this um, is, is that study. And so we're going to kind of take, um, take what we've learned so far with these three separate studies and kind of um, look about how we can move forward and what we can do um, because, or what we can do to disrupt these frames, because mm. what we found is that the smaller counter narratives didn't necessarily work. However, we can play with the dosage. We can have much yes. longer counter narratives. We can have yes. more interactions. We can do, um, interventions of diffusion and acceptance mm. and kind mm. of incorporating act in there or, yeah. um, just kind of a whole bunch of options that we can do with this, but then doing so in a representative sample, I think is something that I know that I would love to have and kind of having that kind of specific indicators of yeah. what, I guess, because there's a lot of things that kind of impact how people view disabled individuals, um, whether that be culturally, um, as well as just kind of interactions Absolutely. with disabled people. Um, all of these things. And so that's something that we hope to kind of look at is just had these different interactions as well. I mean, the sky's the limit for this stuff, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> definitely. Uh, like, like, I, I, like, I'd love to see that longitudinal progression where it's not psychology and it's not ABA, you know? So what's mm -hmm. a bunch of sort of, you know, you know, undergraduate math students who then go into graduate school in math and then become math teachers and what their sort of perspective is. Because, you know, is it the ABA training and the ABA experience that's making the stigma stronger or is it just life? You know, right. you know, um, you, oh. know you, you know, as other things like, like, because I mean, it seems like the intervention right now is going to be sort of because this is just, I mean, and this sort of is a good way to sort of just conceptualize the importance of early intervention in general, because these relations are just weaker the mm -hmm. earlier you kind of get into these sorts of, you know, connections. Um, and, you know, and, and this is sort of that, I guess this is kind of that learning history kind of idea that they're, it's just, they're, they're stronger and more coherence as you kind of go along. But I kind of wonder about, you know, you know, I wonder about that. Like, I wonder about sort of, you know, comparing universities you know so mm -hmm. you know what's what what's sort of you know and i'm just naming these off the top of my head i don't know that these are neg i'm not saying these programs are negative or positive but sort of you know what 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 do those relations look like for someone that's you know went to western michigan you know an old school original university to someone you know who went to you know you know one of these newer newer online universities to someone you know who's 
did their training in you know in in in, in Egypt, you know, mm-hmm. and 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 what did that look like, and 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 then start to look at the differences between the trainings and, and the courses, and you know, and, and and the focus of those professors, and like it's just it's nonstop. Definitely, yeah, that's somewhere that I had kind of I guess hoped to take it to is kind of how we can use this to look introspectively at our field. Because if we're able to, if this is a viable method for intervention, or if it's a viable method just to study what autism stigma within a specific organization looks like, because that's what we, what we can do with RDT is it looks at that, like, um, that's, I guess that's the limitation, but it's also, I think, a strength at the same time. So with RDT, we have those smaller samples only represent the relational frames within that existing group. And so mm. that that's why we're not able to generalize it outside of. But when you're looking or we're not able to make like larger inferences about the field of ABA with these results, it would need more kind of more research to look into if this is a common phenomenon or, or if it's just yeah. this one program. Right. And so looking at um, kind of looking at how we can look at specific programs and look at, like you said, their course sequence or looking at like, what are these, what is this place doing that's promoting maybe a less stigmatizing program versus yeah. what's this program doing um, that's maybe making it worse and yeah. kind of evaluating these programs at the start because that's where we start. That's where we all start. We all start with, or that's where we get the most information is in our graduate program. Mm-hmm. And so kind of evaluating what is that information that we are getting and how does that affect how we view the people that we're going to serve. Awesome, Claire. This stuff is so cool. I, I thought, think so. I, I didn't think it would be. I mean, I thought it could be, but I didn't think it would mm-hmm. be in my head. I didn't think oh. my head would make the connection to make it cool. Um, oh, it definitely, it's it's a lot more like, you have to think about it kind of hard, but when you um, think about it a little bit more, you can see what we can do with RDT. And that's yeah. kind of, I guess the broad is this provided like a quantitative expert or quantitative like representation of relational frames around autism for the first time and so that's that's something that kind of we're able to look at but then this is something that we can do for a lot of other things as well and that's what I I think is really really cool about RDT so you know for a long time I've really hated the phrase behavior analysis to save the world are you a BCBA supervisor looking to streamline your practice Or maybe you're working towards your BCBA and need to find the right supervisor. Homehouse offers tools that make supervision so much more enjoyable for both supervisor and supervisee. For supervisors, they offer easy meeting documentation, competency tracking, monthly verification forms, a built-in supervision curriculum, and so much more. For supervisees, Homehouse has a fieldwork tracker with built-in auditing, monthly verification forms, a curriculum, quizzes, and more. If you're looking for a supervisor, they even have a supervision marketplace where you can connect with BCBAs until you find your perfect match. Kind of like professional dating. For more information, go to whomhouse.com forward slash speak or search whomhouse on Google. But this sounds like something where maybe we could actually do some good uh, with. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and that's got to feel pretty good. Yeah, uh, it does for me a little bit. It gives me a little bit of hope to keep yeah. going and keep researching this because if we're able to, if we're able to do the things that we've kind of said on here, that's 
I think, a step closer to where we should be as a field to be that more critical of ourselves and how we, how our language and how our kind of interactions and how that can affect other people. And especially if we're able to kind of address those things and we're able to kind of fix ourselves, then we might be able to look a little bit more outside of ourselves and more kind of towards kind of directing how we can create change within other fields as well. Because if we can create change within ours, um, with ableism or with other types of um, like kind of constructs like racism or sexism, then that might be something that we can then say, hey, this is what we've done within our field. And this is how we've made it better from going from this one, this area of where we're viewed very negatively mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and kind of we've done the work because it's not going to be something that we can quickly change because we've created like long lasting impacts on individuals um, that have been negative. And so that's something that needs to be kind of aware of through this entire process of creating change of like, are we still creating harm or are there things that kind of maybe don't address everything that we need to. And that's why with this research grant as well, we're hoping to get um, or we plan to get kind of the input of autistic researchers and autistic individuals on these interventions because that's something that we want to be aware of and want to be receptive to is the kind of the commentary, the commentary from the autistic community, because if we're fixing ourselves to be one way, that it might not be, it might not fix everything. Um, And so kind of seeing maybe like getting that perspective of other people and autistic individuals that have criticisms of a field and seeing those, because again, there's that thought of throwing the whole field away, but seeing kind of where we can, where we can not do that, where we can kind of um, branch out from that. I'm so glad you said that because I could totally see this backfiring. Yes. Um, um, uh, you know, I think the the I think the sci- the science is sound and the procedures are sound, but if in the end, it's still, you know, white neurotypical folks that are deciding what's positive and what's negative, okay. you know, then, then 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 we're just you know then we're doing all this stuff to. You know, it's still problematic. So if you're going to get actually get the right. voices of the folks who are, you know, the targets, I guess, of stigma and ableism, these mm-hmm. these these should be the folks that, you know, articulate what the positive outcomes should look like, and right. then and then you can create an intervention that can get them there. But also, you know, is that intervention going to be, you know, um problematic in some other way and so having right. having them kind of inform that i think is 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 brilliant um, mm-hmm. um yeah and that's something that that kind of is something that i try to keep in mind with all of this research because we have been i guess as a field we have been very data centered yeah. on um kind of these experiences that have been brought forth by autistic individuals and so they're bringing lived experience however, not being listened to. Mm-hmm. And this does provide quantitative data for stigmatization of autism, but this is not a replacement of like lived experience. Mm-hmm. Those, mm-hmm. those values and those personal accounts of stigma and prejudice and discrimination are more important in my, yeah. 
and this is in support of. And so that's why like kind of this further research as we go, like keeping that in mind, if not, we don't want this data to be the overshadowing thing because mm-hmm. it's not coming from this part, right. That I just, that we just did, did not yep. come from the autistic community. This, right. I've had, like, we've, I've talked with people um, kind of after the fact of what we can do. And that's something that I see as a limitation for myself on this original study is that we didn't get that involvement with autistic individuals for yeah. the development of this, yeah. but there's kind of moving forward, knowing that that's something that we want to kind of keep consistent and keep kind of yeah. a focus <laughs> that that's something that we want to keep doing to make sure that these interventions and these studies and things like that, that we're running are not causing more harm. And they're actually something that is socially relevant for the autistic community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, super cool. And, and yeah, and I love the idea of, you know, you got to get the, 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 you know, the folks that are being stigmatized are the ones that should be describing what that stigma is and, 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 and giving you those labels you know, mm-hmm. and then you can, you know, do your research around sort of, you know, you know, uh, because the other, because the other, the other thing, you know, you, know sort of you run the risk of sort of, you know, um, you know, sort of turning these folks into sort of, you know, kind of, what's that like phrase token, they use? Tokenizing? Yeah, like, like the inspiration porn kind of thing. You yeah. Know, right. You know, and, and, and that's, and that would, and that's something that like, um, I guess with this grant that we are able to do is we're able to actually pay autistic researchers or pay autistic people to be a part of that's what we're going to use the part of the grant of. And so to not just take that personal experience and just be like, yeah. we need this for a study. It's no, this is you, your time and your um, lived experiences worth kind of all of this stuff. And that's something that I guess, I guess we should be aware of as a field. I'm not sure. Yeah. I guess, I don't know what the percentage of, people that get involved with research like that and get paid for it. That's um, awesome. But that's something that like we want there, to be, there's a to great, be aware of. Um, you might be familiar with it. There's a great Facebook group called uh, autistic researchers researching autism. Oh, um, that's I'm worth, not a part of that. That's okay. worth check. That's worth checking out. So it's all, uh, they, they kindly let me join, but it's all, mm-hmm. you know, as a, a sort of a, you know, someone who's just trying to learn and it's, it's all autistic folks that are, you know, you know, basically most of them are kind of graduate level PhD researchers in a variety of fields, but mostly researching things related to autism. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, probably a good, good spot to sort of find folks that might want to, you know, be a part of this, or at least recommend folks that might want to be a part of this because they're, they're the big wigs in sort of, um, you know, uh, this realm. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, you're not allowed to talk about ABA in that group. So, but, That's uh, fair. <laughs> but, but, you know, I think, um, I think, uh, you know, I don't think you are, um, you know, um, in, in this conversation, that stuff is cool, Claire. I am, <laughs> you, know, you know, I heard, I also heard again, when I heard Jordan doing that podcast stuff, every time you'd go through some of this really technical nerdy stuff, you go, and that's cool. Um, and then you go, this is pretty cool. And this is super mm-hmm. cool. And I'm like, how is this cool? Um, it's this is just, this is just melting my mind, but it's not today. Um, uh, and that's, and, that's something that like Jordan instills in a lot of us of, yeah. with RDT is that yeah. we all are on the train of this stuff's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. we like to t- tell a lot of people about it. And so kind of knowing that we're kind of, we're able to 
do that for people is awesome. So. Well, I think you've done a great job doing it. If I understand it, I'm pretty sure there's a good chunk of folks <laughs> that are listening that maybe didn't understand it before that will understand it now. That said, I did have, you know, some of the stuff that you sent me in front of me. So, you know, um, if uh, I, I don't know if uh, if this uh, document is this is, is shareable. Um, uh, but you know, it would be nice to sort of include something for folks to kind of maybe have to reference because it really helped me to have this in front of me while you were talking, um, just to sort of go, oh yeah, because I like I had these graphs in front of me with the negatives and the positives, and yes. it just it, it, it definitely helped my brain uh, wrap wrap around this. So yeah, so if, if this is something we could share, or if you have something else that maybe we can share, sort of after the fact that we can add on, that'd be great. I will have to see, but I know I've got some pictures that I made that are kind of specifically for this to kind of, yeah, because I, I, I feel think, like it makes, helps it make it, it's very visual. And so to do yeah. it without a visual is a little difficult. Exactly. But. So I think, I think a couple of the visuals and maybe, um, you know, this, this little first page here that has the, the definitions of the key concepts would be really nice to share with folks too. Mm -hmm. um, and I might even just type those in the show notes. I don't think any of that is uh, private knowledge. It's just definitions, but it just helps right. to, to make those connections. Because I think, I do think initially the physics stuff can throw people off. Um, certainly. And certainly, you know, then there may be some, you know, RDT happening there as far as sort of negative experiences with, you know, you know, high school science and whatnot, and, you know, um, you know, a lot of, I think there's a lot of us kind of, a lot of us kind of got into this field and, and, you know, avoided the sciences to get into the arts. And, um, um, and yep. so uh, there, there's some trauma there possibly <laughs> for folks. So, uh, you know, but, but uh, yeah, no, really, really cool research. So you're, you're probably, when, when are you, when are you graduating, when are you, when are you done the program? Um, done with the program, I guess it would be in July is when I'm fully done. Oh, June and then, or July. And then are you planning to sort of stay with the lab after that and keep doing some work or? So I'm actually, that's, I'm going to transition to my doctoral program and I will be working with Dr. Mark Dixon up there because um, he's actually at that program as well. Um, oh. And so I'll still be working. I hope to still kind of collaborate with Hub Lab because um, we still are working oh. on a lot of stuff, um, but there's a lot of kind of inner lab work that might, that might be done kind of in the future. Oh, okay. So this, this PhD is still going to involve some of this kind of work. Oh, that's definitely. Awesome. Yeah. Ah. So that, that's been my hope of, I want my coursework and kind of the PhD process to be a lot of disability study, but yeah. I still want to use the science of behavior analysis to do research yeah. and incorporate yeah. that stuff in there. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, Claire, I, 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 this was awesome. Uh, I learned a ton today. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm kind of excited to nerd out on some of these articles now <laughs> that I wouldn't have ever wanted to touch before. So I appreciate that. Uh, well, we and we definitely have a lot of kind of articles that are currently being, being, being published and getting put out that are more on this RDT stuff. So that would definitely be kind of on the lookout for everybody of, um, we're publishing kind of a lot of stuff right now. And, um, this, related is, this, to RDT. Is, and this is called the, the, the hub lab. Is that right? Yeah, it stands for Humans Understanding Behavior. Ah, very good. And so we we do have a website and then a Facebook page as well that we Perfect. Facebook yeah. pages where we post more often and on. We'll definitely put all that in the show notes for folks to check out. And mm -hmm. and I'm thinking maybe you know uh, it'd be great to have you back when you're in your PhD program and start talking about some of that work. Definitely, that would yeah. be awesome. Fantastic. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. This was really cool. Thanks a lot. Of course. Thank you for having me. Yeah.